Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Glamorous Trash. On this podcast, we recap and discuss celebrity memoirs. We pontificate about pop culture. And sometimes, if it's a real doozy, we cry. If you have ever casually referenced Mariah Carey in therapy, then this is probably the podcast for you. I'm your host, Chelsea Devantes. I'm a TV writer, comedian, and filmmaker, and sometimes I'm in stuff too. Today, we are book clubbing the memoir of Candace Bergen. Many of you will know her, obviously, as Murphy Brown, the star of the show with the same name, which ran for 11 seasons and tackled highly politicized issues like being a single mom. Murphy Brown was just before my time. So if you are younger than me, you probably know Candace as the evil pageant lady, uh, Kathy Morningside in Miss Congeniality, or as the wedding planner in Bride Wars. Today, we are reading her second memoir titled A Fine Romance, published in 2016. Her first memoir called Knockwood is about her relationship with her dad, who is a famous ventriloquist and loves the ventriloquist doll more than her. Yes, that is true. However, I wanted to read about the Murphy Brown parts of her career. So we are reading the second memoir today and... I almost stopped reading it. I almost called this podcast off. I want to shout out a cookie named Christopher who told me that the book had one of the most bizarre endings of a memoir ever, which was like the dangly carrot I needed to keep going. So I finished the book. He was not wrong. This is going to be a very fun conversation, but perhaps a memoir you can skip reading. Also, before we dive in, please note that we recorded this conversation back in the summertime when the writer's strike was still going on. So we are going to reference the strike, even though that strike thankfully is now over, but you will hear us mention it. Okay, let's dive in. Can you remember what it was specifically about Murphy Brown, the character in the pilot that made you want to commit to that, first of all? Well, it was just the finest piece of comedy writing that you could imagine. It was reminiscent of the great Hollywood comedies of the 30s and 40s. It was crisp, it was smart, it was sassy, it was informed. Um, and, and the character of Murphy, really, we hadn't seen on television before because she was sort of this brassy, bratty, very competent woman who was at the top of a career that made no room for women in those days, which is broadcast journalism, and uh, was, as you know, could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with any man and, um, and could drink any man under the table as well. So she was, um, I just found her irresistible. 
Our guest today is a TV writer and essayist. She has most recently written for ABC's Home Economics and stars horror comedy Shining Veil and shot a pilot with Sharon Horgan and Paul Feig starring Ellie Kemper and Judy Greer. Please welcome Julianne Splinsky. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. I was really excited that you were the guest for many reasons, but specifically to talk about Murphy Brown and the sitcom business. We know him as half-hour comedies now, and because you, you know, are a writer for sitcoms. Do we still call them sitcoms? I mean, I haven't heard. So, yeah, I mean, I I know a lot of people kind of find that pejorative. Uh, Yeah. I think think we're kind of going back to a model where it's okay to to enjoy sitcoms and, and call them that. Okay, good. Okay, good. Well, yeah, so we we both write for the modern version of shows like Murphy Brown. So I'm like really excited to talk about all the differences. We agreed to do Candace Bergen's book like three years ago before I had even launched this podcast. So actually three and a half years ago. So tell me why Candace Bergen? Uh, I had a single mom growing up. And I think you did too. Mm-hmm. And um, we watched Murphy Brown. I remember very vividly, even though, you know, elementary school at the time, um, the Dan Quayle thing of Dan Quayle calling Murphy Brown, you know, an, an unfit mother and saying that she was like trying to put dads out of the picture. <laughs> you know, it's just like <laughs> for somebody with a single mom, that was very like, hey, we're single moms are real and they exist and, and they're not here to demonize men. Yeah. Candace Bergen, it, like, you know, she's an icon. She's an icon. Also, it's like it's it's like the one single mother on television of the thousand uh, television moms who are married. Like, shut up, Dan Quayle. Yeah, it's so funny that like that one thing that she was a single mom and that she wasn't struggling and she had money and all of the stuff. So you know, it was it was very. And also, I think I think she was like forty five on the show when she had a yeah. baby, which was nuts. So yeah. I mean, it was just all cool and revolutionary. And plus, like. If you've ever seen her on a TV show or giving an interview, she's very, very, very smart. And so I thought, okay, this will be well-written. I hate when, you know, I I love celebrity memoirs too. I generally tend to read more like female comedian type stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I hate when you can tell, it's just, you can hear the ghostwriter working. And I know that she doesn't work with one very specifically, so... Yeah, all of those fantastic reasons. And yes, she did not work with a ghostwriter, but sometimes I really wish she would have. <laughs> oh my God, I know. There's some crazy shit in here. Crazy. This was, it was such a surprising book. You know, I'm a fan of Candace Bergen, Murphy Brown, all of that. But my weird connection to her is that um, I grew up very new age. And one of our favorite books is this book called The Birthday Book, which does this very in-depth two-page, you know, analysis on your personality. I know The Birthday Book. And then uh, there's a little column on each page letting you know what celebrities share your birthday. And Candace Bergen and I are both May 8th double Tauruses. Oh, my God. And the, they give you a title in the birthday book for your personality. And the title for our, our birthday is The Outspoken Spokesperson, which, <laughs> as I'm currently saying this into a microphone, I do want to roll my eyes at myself. Um, but I've always thought of Candace Bergen as like, you know, my birthday mentor. So yes. I was excited for that. So, okay. <laughs> I think, did you also want to quit the book at any point? Well, I, I rolled my eyes really hard. And again, I don't come from generational wealth. I'm like, a person who's like very, very stressed out by not working. And I started this maybe like two weeks into the strike. (laughs) Yeah, not great, not great. No, and I was already (laughs) chewing my fingernails off. And so much of it is about 
her, the times when I did get angry and want to quit are the times when she talked about how much money she has. <laughs> just like a very, like, in a very matter of fact way, which is, a, I want to say it's refreshing, but it, it's too, um, it made me too angry for me to find the- For to be refreshed from it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I wanted to quit early. On page two, she just is quickly like, you know, Nancy Reagan has been a friend my whole oh, yeah, life. Yeah, terrible. Mm-hmm. And, but I was like, wait a minute, your whole life. I really didn't know that she grew up just super wealthy and sort of child of Hollywood. And then on the same page, she's like, you know, me and Nancy, she lists her exact weight when pregnant. And this is a celebrity book club drinking bingo that I literally printed out on the Patreon where the author lists her exact weight because it just happens all the fucking time. I just don't understand. Like (laughs) women are just constantly like, and at this point, and I realize it's what they did to us, what they did to our brains. It's just so funny when it makes it onto the page. Absolutely. I think especially boomer women, they were so trained to, and, and their moms, kind of were the women who were like, oh yeah, we all weighed 90 pounds. We used to, the hamburgers used to be the size of doll's hats, you know, all of that weird weight stuff. And it's all throughout the book. I mean, it's like, here's how much I weighed then. She ends, I don't know if this is the part that you're talking about. Near the end of the book, she talks about how fat she is now. And it's like, what? Let's scroll to that really quickly because I actually had a, I can't tell if the book had just like beaten me down at that point, but Okay, it's page 289. She writes this. She says, let me just come right out and say it. I am fat. In the past 15 years since I've married Marshall, I have put on 30 pounds. This is due to several factors. Uh, Blah, 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 blah. And then she's like, I'm a champion eater. No carb is safe. No fat either. And I wrote, no, Candace. No. (laughs) Very bad. But then she kind of turned me because... Then she says, at a recent dinner party, I shared bread and olive oil followed by chocolate ice cream with my husband. A woman near me looked at me appalled and I thought, I don't care. And I was like, oh, is this weirdly going to be an acceptance thing? And she talks about just eating in Hollywood, having decided she doesn't care anymore. And all the people who are like, look at her weirdly. And she's like, fuck off. And then and then she talks about losing all the compliments she used to get, but doesn't care. And so I was like, did this turn around a little bit. I don't know. There, Then she kind of follows it up with a part where she's like, my husband tries to keep cheese and stuff out of the fridge. So I'm not tempted. And whenever I go for the bowl of ice cream, he's like, candy, remember your diet. And I kind of, I'm angry at them both. Yeah. Angry at them both. I missed that she started as a model. So I mean, I just knew her from Murphy Brown and on, which is she gets when she's like 40. So I didn't know the first part of her career. And the fact that she was a model, you know, that's whatever happened to her brain then is still alive and well. Well, and she kind of plays like the young, sexy woman in a couple of Burt Reynolds movie type things. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, I it's so funny because like, you know, I worked with Jane Fonda for a long time. Yeah. It's a woman who has a very similar relationship with her father and a similar relationship to stardom. And uh, Jane Fonda, who, you know, will say things like, oh, I'm still carrying around that extra 10 pounds, even though she weighs 90 pounds. Like, it's just depressing that it's like, oh, I'm going to be 80 years old and still worried about my weight. But yeah, it's just like, I think, I think, and I remember my mom telling me this, um, when we were watching Murphy Brown, you know, like her dad was a famous ventriloquist and he left money to the puppet and not to her. (laughs) Yeah, she wrote in the book, Charlie was in the will. And I I mean, I think she got money, but like her name wasn't in the will. Yeah, yeah, which is crazy. But then she also talks about like 
like several boxes full of family jewels that her mother had that they ended yeah. up with. And it's just like, that's, that's where I, I had to put the book down and, and go for a walk. Cause I, I, I think I maybe had the opposite part where I was like, you know what, if your dad writes the ventriloquist doll's name in the will and not your own. Yeah. You know what? Punish your body all you want. Like I, like that feels like a direct one-to-one -one comparison. Obviously I wish you wouldn't, but like, we know where this comes from. You know what I mean? And like, yes. I just, yeah, that, that part was really hard. Well, okay, so then then I really wanted to quit the book. It, just the very next pages where she meets Louis Mall, who is her first husband. He is also the director of Pretty Baby, which if you listen to our Brooke Shields episode, he is the director of, of the movie that featured Brooke Shields naked at 12 years old in this sex worker movie that was quite scandalous. And... Susan Sarandon's also in that movie. And then you learn from Candace that he had a relationship with Susan Sarandon and has them skip the Oscars so that they don't run into Susan Sarandon, <laughs> which is insane. And she doesn't, she never says Louis directed Pretty Baby. And she tells us a lot of movies that Louis directed, but she never really mentions that Louis directed Pretty Baby because it was quite controversial. I remember there being a weird passing reference to it someplace. I didn't highlight it, but she does say something really strange about, oh, the director of Pretty Baby having a daughter or something like. Oh, yeah, that's right. Strange. I knew of him because I took French all throughout college. And there was one class that was like, you know, an immersion thing where they spoke French the entire time. And it was the French films about World War II. Mm -hmm. And his are like all like really beautiful and moving. It's lots of like Catherine Deneuve. And I think it's very strange and very kind of funny. And she talks about it a lot in the book that this guy who was this very like fancy French film director married like an American sitcom actress. It's just yeah. a very unusual and odd match, but you know, yeah, he kind of glosses over a lot of the, you know, she's like, Louis had a lot of women before me. <laughs> yeah. Well, when their marriage starts, um, she is shooting the film Gandhi and she's shooting in India and Louis meets her and takes her on this tour of India. And this is when I wanted to quit the book because she tells you every step of this quote unquote vacation in India, all the places, what the weather was like, where they ate, when they sat down, when they napped. No one in my life is allowed to do this to me. No, Beyonce couldn't tell, take me through every step of her vacation. I don't want this information. So boring. Like also like tell us stories. Like I don't care what bench you found. Like, what do you do? This is pages. And worse than that, it was brutally Caucasian. Brutally racist. Yes. Brutally, brutal. brutally I mean, brutal. and I'm not being facetious. I'm going to read um, a page from the book. So um, oddly enough, I actually uh, went to India when I was um, 19. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Very, it was very, I was, you know, had never traveled before in my life. It was very uh, not prepared, but I went to this city that she is about to write about uh, to visit a friend who was doing charity work there. So Pune was hard on us both. So unpleasant and pointless a place. Yeah, I had a job to do. So she talks about, this is just a city called Pune. And she's like, that place sucks. And I'm like, one, like, how could you? And two, like, no, it doesn't. I've been there. And then um, she talks about how she says the aggression of the street people was bludgeoning. And, and the way she talks about it is like so heartbreaking. And she learns that Martin Sheen 
um, is so moved by the poverty, he's going to donate his entire salary he's making on the movie to helping like children in poverty in India. And then she talks about how Martin Sheen haunts her throughout the trip and how she never gives her salary, but will later tell us how she made $25 million doing Sprint commercials. I know. Insane. Insane. And then also reading this on kind of the the heels of the year of the Nepo baby, which I know that you guys have talked about a lot here, this stuff about her horrid daughter <laughs> just seems like the, the biggest monster in the whole world. But, where, oh, really? Because I feel ugh. like the way Candace writes about her, like, I think there's a chance her daughter is a lovely you know, great woman, but you don't, we won't know because of how Candace wrote. <laughs> right. I'm sure that if I were depicted by my mother in a memoir, I wouldn't like it, but it's a lot of stuff like I gave my daughter my apartment. And before you say it's not hers, you have to see how exquisitely she decorated it. It's like, you can both go to hell. <laughs> and just <laughs> the shit where the entire last third of the book is about this dumb bitch's wedding. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I, and, and like, there's one part where she's like, the rehearsal dinner was so beautiful that I was like, maybe we should just do it here instead of at your dad's castle in France. And that her daughter is like, mom, how dare you? Like, my mom didn't pay for my fucking wedding. Like, just reading about all of this stuff, it's just like, it makes you want to move to another yeah. country. <laughs> um, move underground. Yes. Yeah, I had the opposite take. I ended up feeling pretty bad for Chloe because, and just hear me out on this. Sure. One, she's printing letters from Chloe as a child through adulthood in her book. And she's talking about certain things about Chloe. We're going to get to one of them where I was like, this is tough. This really feels like this. And Chloe is a writer. Like this should be left for her to talk about. And then, okay, let me just share a personal tangent really quick. One time there was a girl in college who always used to be like, oh, I know everyone has issues, but my issue is that my mom loved me too much. And she just gave me everything and she paid for everything. And she just does like too much for me. And I was actually like, oh, okay, let me check what jail is closest because I'm going to murder you. And I want to make sure it's a good jail that I go to. <laughs> and I was like, you're like, fuck off with that. However, when I was reading about Candace and Chloe, I was thinking about that girl. And I was like, oh, I wonder if she had a mom like Candace. And if maybe that could be a like a little crushing. I don't know. I, I felt sad. Right. But then again, and, and you know, again, like, I don't know this person. I don't know her journey, but... Candace Bergen writing things like, people want to prejudge my daughter because she's got famous parents, but did you know she's the youngest editor of Vogue at 25? And it's like, yeah, how do you yeah. think she got that job? Yeah, what are you talking about? I, know. She also, I think a lot of it is uh, just her mother, I think Candace just being delusional about how things work because it worked for her. I, I completely agree. Also, she did some, this is again where I like felt bad for Chloe in that Step by step, Candace tells us how she got Chloe the editor job. She's like, yes. Chloe wanted this high profile interview. So I knew the person whose horse they owned because we horsed together. And so, and then I had a more famous horse lady come and join us. And then I came to the interview, rode on horseback behind them, and the piece ran and she became the editor. It's like, you know, I bet Chloe doesn't want you sharing that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really just kind of like it's it's paint by numbers nepotism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Just, it really is a, an I'm ABC. Sure that she's a lovely girl, and I'm sure she's very, uh, you know, she loves to talk about how thin her daughter is too. And I'm like, all right, you can lay <sighs> off all of that. But I feel yeah. like I'm really like shitting on the book. One of the things I do want to say about it is it is very well written. Like 
Even when what? during the super boring India passages, no. I thought like she's a good writer. And sometimes it's very like they're fun, surprising turns of phrase where she's actually like, like I would th- I think maybe if there wasn't so much blatant um, kind of tone deaf rich people stuff in it, that it would be kind of funny when she talks about how much money she was taking Sprint for. Like she really like if in anybody else's memoir, if that were a person that you didn't know was now married to a billionaire, which, by the way, we shouldn't gloss over that. She's now married to a billionaire. And yeah. another, like, a rich person just getting richer and richer and richer throughout her life. Which the reason she tells us about Sprint and Murphy Brown is that she wants you to know she didn't marry him for money and she had her own money. Yes, and that she yeah. has her own money. But at the same time, it's like, how do you think the the, how do you think the rich people getting richer thing works exactly, Candace. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, think, yeah. How do you think that most people get their sprint I, sponsorships? I am, okay, so I'm, I'm surprised you think she's a good writer. However, do you, because you are, you are also a very good writer. Do you mean like her sentence structure and yes. actual, okay. I think okay, just okay. stylistically she's a good writer. I think a lot of times memoirs, memoirs sort of read like they were kind of as told to in Cosmo, which, you know, they're fine and have their purpose, but this actually had... A little bit of style to it. You know, there are mm. times when she's talking about the fabric that she picked for her sofa that I don't really need to know about. <laughs> but it's like, it also, it just reminds me of like, there's this very kind of, you know, the way that I'm able to love Martha Stewart, even though I know that Martha Stewart is an insane white billionaire. Because it's like, oh, it's just Martha Stewart. Like, yeah. Also, Martha Stewart is doing TikToks riding on her lawnmowers. Yes. At like smoking a <laughs> joint. Like I'm fully yeah. in for Martha at this point. Mm-hmm. I, it, yeah, it's interesting, you know, and I think the type of writer and reader I am, um, I don't care how good of a writer you are. If your content is, let, let me just actually just read a page because you just talked about the decorating thing and I <laughs> was like, I was going to blow my brains out. Okay, this, I'm just going to go to a random page in the decorating chapter. In the entry hall, there was a hearth seven feet high and the floor was laid with large rounded stones. The fireplace in the entry was designed to give warmth to the stairwell and stave off the damp chill of the winters. The thickness of the walls kept the house fairly cool, even in the baking heat of August. We closed the shutters, windows, and curtains and hunkered down, reading or cooking until the evening when the heat would drop. The master bedroom was very italiante. <laughs> that can't be how you say that. I think it's Italian it, but yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Painted a flat salmon and hung with a rich velvet fringe curtains. I mean, this is pages and yes. pages. And this is where I'm like, I would read anything else, even if after every other word, there was a comma. Yeah. I would read anything else to anything yeah, so else. I almost thought I would quit as well. You know, there were there were, you know, reading about how she got together with her husband. Some of their letters were very sweet. The No, don't print stuff. your letters in a book. No, 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 no. I I think like well, he's dead though, you know. I Do you know, feel different but- if he's dead? No, I don't. And I, you know what? I'm alone in this. I most people love things like this, but I like when I'm reading a book, like please write the book. If you're going to copy paste more than a hundred letters and emails into your book, like just don't write it. Don't, you know what I mean? I'm with you. I think that they should be tastefully excerpted. And not yes, exactly. I, give me like charity. a line from his letter. We're just getting every piece of correspondence they ever wrote. I do have to say, like, there were huge parts where I was like, oh, my God, this is so boring and this is homework. And then there actually were parts that I found, you know, the the death of Louis Maul was really, really sad um, and just very genuinely moving the way that she talks about having to care for this sick person and where she's kind of, 
you know, still going to work at her sitcom every day. And meanwhile, like this person who she loves, it's a very intense love affair. I mean, these yeah, are two people yeah. who like, you can tell really, really cared about each other and were very in love. And then just this, this loss that she still feels even decades later, married to somebody else. Um, yeah. it, it was really, well, I thought, well told. The Louis, um, I agree with that. And I think the Louis marriage, so just to give everyone an overview, um, they meet late in life. They meet like three times and don't like each other, like neutral to I actively hate him. And like on the fourth time, they're like, oh my God, we're in love. And they have this marriage, but this is the longest distance marriage of all time. I mean, they spend no time together. So he has this whole career um, in France and they have a house over there, but she's in Los Angeles doing Murphy Brown. And so- they are not with each other almost ever throughout these 10 years. I mean, it didn't seem like it. And even when they are, he has just flown in and there's jet lag and there's days to get over it. And so when he gets sick, it's the first time his daughter, Chloe, is able to get to know him because mm -hmm. he's finally home and he's finally there, but he's sick and he's dying. So uh, yeah, that was very moving. It's the most French thing ever that before that, his affectionate nickname for her is like dumbass or something. <laughs> the daughter. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And Louis Ma had two children from two other previous relationships. And it's like, they all agree that while he wasn't around much as a dad, he was a really special dad to have. And it's like, dude, hmm, maybe let's let them tell their own stories there, Candace. Yes. And also if that was gender swapped and it's like, you know, our mom was never around, but she had a cool career. <laughs> no, no, no. They wouldn't tell the story like that. They'd be like, yes. what a terrible mother. Can you yes, believe? Yes, mom was off making yeah. pretty baby and trafficking Brooke Shields, but, you yeah, know. Yeah, but she was pretty. What a gal. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, very tough. Okay, so they're married, and then Louis starts to get jealous that she starts becoming a celebrity late in life with Murphy Brown. She's basically like, he was super insecure because I became really famous as Murphy Brown and um, and he couldn't take it and he wanted his career to be better. And you're like, oh God, I'm so sick of this pattern in, in memoirs. And then two pages on, I think he's cheating on me, but I, but he wasn't, but in the page, but in between I was like, but he is. Yeah. I believe you didn't want to say he is, but he is. That was a big, weird, unsaid thing where she's like, I could feel him starting to drift and he had famously drifted before. And it's like, okay. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, <clears throat> okay. I think she, maybe she just didn't want to put in print. And then uh, she starts seeing a warlock, which is our psychic moment of the book she, to fix Louis when he gets sick with lymphoma. And then Here's a page I'm going to read. But like when I said I felt bad for Chloe, one, that this was printed in a book, but I am going to read it. And two, that, I mean, she was, I think she was 10. She was 10 when she said this. This is what she said at her dad's funeral. I love my poppy. I always will. There were times, though, I was ready to kill him. I remember once at our house in France, I told my mom I didn't like him. I was five at the time. Now I think about that time again. Who would say they didn't like their father? Though at the time, I was convinced he never loved me. Of course he loved me. He just didn't know how to show it sometimes. Which, quick side note here, that is Candace's relationship with her father, and now her own daughter has that relationship. It's like a, a repeated pattern in Candace's life. Okay, back to what she was saying. That was the whole thing. We were always competing against each other. He had so much energy. I remember once two weeks after he had open heart surgery, he jumped off the pool house into the pool, which my mom was not pleased about. And then at the end, she says, 
One night during his last few months, I went into his room and squeezed into his uncomfortable hospital bed. I put my hands on his. I stayed there like that for a long time. That was the first time in 10 years I told him I loved him. I had to get used to this new poppy. Slowly as time went by, I did. In November, I left to spend Thanksgiving in New York. It was a simple goodbye, and it was the last. And then there's a line afterwards that's like, people in the room were aghast. It's like, (laughs) uh, yeah, I'm aghast. (laughs) It's just, it's like, I know that Candace has given her this um, gigantic apartment on Central Park West, but I hope she's also getting like daily therapy. It's just, it's a lot. She she does have a great chapter about uh, trying Prozac for the first time, which I oh, loved. Right. The last last little thing I have to talk about in the in the Louis Mall thing is: Did you clock the dig to share on page eighty two? The Moonstruck thing. Yes, I'm gonna yeah. read it. Which, yeah. by the way, you know we've done more than a hundred episodes now. The amount of memoirs where they take a moment to dig on share. I am so fucking upset about every dig, and I just want everyone to know who is digged on share in writing in their memoir, I see you, and I will remember you, and so will all the cookies. Okay, so this was the year that Cher won Best Actress for Moonstruck and thanked her hair and makeup people, but not her director, Norman Jewison. What is this country where they remember to thank hair and makeup, but not the director, Louis wanted to know? This is just a random... A random little, I didn't like how you did that. And I I love that Cher thanked her hair and makeup people, the people who never get thanked. Also, like, will no one shed a tear for the director of this film? It's like, they get thanked for everything. Like, thank hair and makeup. Like, these are the people who never get thanked. Also, what if her director was fucking horrible to her? Yeah, what if he was an asshole? So, you Come know. On. Yeah, I just, I didn't like it. Okay, so into Murphy Brown. A little, this is what she says. There was a script for a television pilot circulating. No one in my agency thought to submit me for it except for one lowly new agent. He was a Southern boy named Brian Lord. I said, is this Brian Lord of Carrie Fisher's husband and yeah. father? And it is, it is. Um, <laughs> so Brian Lord, I guess, um, champion Murphy Brown. And also, how are you a lowly Southern boy agent when you're already married to Carrie Fisher? I'm sorry. Like, this was like 1994, wasn't it? Yes. And also, when I read Carrie's book and we talked about Brian Lord, who uh, I think a year into their marriage uh, will come out as gay and, mm-hmm. and they divorce. But I remember reading it being like, this feels so weird, like, that he married her so late in life and then— you know, it's like, it's with this thing that you can't judge because you're not in it, but paired with being an agent and rising to the top is like such a bummer. Also, I really don't think that that's how shows are cast, that there's like one one guy in the mailroom that's like, wait, I think Candace Bergen would be great for this. Like yeah. something, something in the milk ain't clean. But yeah, you're right. Um, okay, so this is what I'm really excited to talk to you about. So Diane English uh, had written Murphy Brown and she said the pilot opens with Murphy making her entrance, stepping off the elevator at the offices of FYI, a nighttime news magazine after a month of rehab at Betty Ford. Did it have to be a month at Betty Ford? The network wanted to know. Why couldn't she be returning after a week at a spa? And did she have to be 40? Why couldn't she be 30 and played by Heather Locklear? Diane, a committed feminist, pushed back. The whole point of Murphy is that she had crossed 40 and was at the top of her profession, but decidedly flawed and alcoholic. So I'm just so curious what what your feelings are of like, I was trying to think of the last time I saw a network sitcom that allowed you to be like really authentic and dark. And I was thinking of Roseanne, obviously, which 
feels a little unfair because we brought it back, but it's like, do you feel like you could pitch a show right now where you're like, she's 40 and she's an alcoholic, but it's, it's treated quite real and not like fun, fun drinking. You know what I mean? I think maybe to streaming, but not to broadcast because they're still deeply allergic to anything that's like marginally unlikable. Um, you know, they're still obsessed with like, oh, we gotta, we gotta make sure that everybody in, in middle America loves this person, which is just, you know. But what's so weird is that Murphy Brown is broadcast. It's one of the most successful broadcasts and it was in the nineties. Yeah. Like, how did we lose, do you know what I mean? Like, how did we lose our edginess? I think I remember, you know, I, I remember a lot of episodes of that show. I don't remember that they really kind of kept that alcoholic through line going. And maybe that was kind of one of well, the things. Well, she's going to have a kid. Probably, I get where you draw the line there. Where it's like, mm, let's make her right, healthy but it's for not a long like time. she was, they had her like going to meetings or anything like that. Like, I don't really yeah. even remember it being brought up. So it feels like something that might've kind of fallen off. Um, she does talk about how good the writing is and it's like, well, you know, you get that with top notch writing. And then at some point there's like a dig in there where it's like the writing started to suffer in later seasons. And (laughs) I remember that it was like, they were sort of playing into after the Dan Quayle thing happened. It was like every episode was like a bunch of kind of in jokes and, and, uh, all things about like stuff that was in the news and it stopped being so sitcom-y and it started started being a lot more kind of self-aware. Mm, um, yeah, because like she says Newt Gingrich called and was like, can I come on the show? And they're like, sure. And I was like, Newt Gingrich, you little fucking weasel. Like, I know. And at that point, it's just like, you're just doing, it's all stunt stuff. Um, yeah. You know, and I kind of, I, I remember it feeling so revolutionary because she was a woman and she was leading the show. And you could tell, you know, at the time, like, she was probably like 40 and it probably felt like, you know, 60 to me because I was a kid, but it was this older woman and it was this kind of fun, uh, workplace thing, uh, and, and a really, really great cast. And it felt really, really smart in a way that a lot of sitcoms kind of weren't at the time, especially, you know, this is the era of, um, ABC. What was that? The Friday night TV lineup of like Mm. full house and step-by-step. So it, it really did feel smart and revolutionary and, um, I don't know. Also, there's just so much in the book where it's like, then Diane English was like, no, I won't do this. You take it or leave it. Whereas like, I feel like that's a lot harder to do these days if you're, you know, on a broadcast show. Well, especially if you're just starting out versus like you've earned it. Okay. This feels like a good time to take a quick break. Sibling fights are unavoidable, but what if every fight you had was under a microscope on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince William and Prince Harry. They were each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wondry's podcast, Disintel, is hosted by comedians Sidney Battle and Matt Balasai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle, or was it something that started much earlier? Follow Disintel on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. I started this podcast because I have been obsessed with memoirs my entire life. And I can't believe it, but I got to write my own. And it comes out on June 4th, and you can order it right now. 
The book, you know, I was asked to describe it and I said, it is an absolutely harrowing traumatic memoir, but funny. So if that sounds good to you, order it. Let me give you some topics that are in this memoir. A female best friendship breakup. How I got my break into Hollywood. When I found out my dad was not my real dad. The time I dated a magician. Are those last two related? Who's to say? Read the book. Growing up in Utah. Growing up around cults. How I got into therapy. Listen, I could keep going. Each chapter title is a different woman's name in my life. Some are heroes. Some are motherfucking villains. But you know what? A villain and a hero, what are both of those things? A leading role. And we do love women in our leading roles. So pre-order the book. It matters a lot. I linked everywhere that you can buy it in the show notes, but you know, go anywhere. Also, I am reading the audiobook personally. So I'm personally narrating it. So if you like this podcast, get my longest podcast ever. And the audiobook is also available for pre-sale everywhere you get audiobooks. And thank you so much for listening to this podcast. You are the reason I got to write a memoir. So thank you so, so much. Okay, let's dive back into the episode. Were you a fan of Mom, um, the sitcom on CBS? I've never actually seen it. Uh, it's one of my favorites. And that really? is one. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's one of my favorites because um, she's genuinely poor and mm-hmm. the set shows it. Mm-hmm. She goes to AA meetings. We go to those meetings with her. Like they just, I don't know. There's just a realness that feels allowed sometimes that other times is like not allowed. But then every time it's done, it's like, and then it ran for 11 seasons. And you're like, mm, don't we think maybe given that it's 2023 and you're on TikTok all the time and you're, you, you could have access to authenticity that maybe your gauge of what is wanted is is not edgy enough. I think you have to get to the level where you are Chuck Lorre and you are a 65-year-old white guy and you've got three massive hits under your belt before anybody will let you try that stuff or before you can push back. So, yes. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Mm-hmm. As much as it was a feminist show, then we get this on page 111. This is from Candace. Sexual harassment lawsuits were flaring into fashion and everyone was suing their bosses for real and imagined improprieties overstepping the line routinely. It was irrelevant if you trusted your regular coworkers, but if someone new to the cast or crew heard inappropriate language on the set, they could report you. Quote, once someone files a claim, you're toast, he told us. He was deadly serious, very savvy, and he knew he was addressing comedy writers about a topic that was their bread and butter. If a man told a woman that she looked nice in that blouse, for example, he said it's all you needed to bring a lawsuit. The temperature lowered about 30 degrees. The lawyer made it clear that the boundaries had little wiggle room. We felt like we were being punished for a crime we hadn't committed. It really sounds, I mean, like the the 90s have such a historical mapping of our current culture. Like, I, and not current, I'm going to say it was like four years ago when the joke of like, you can't even tell a woman she looks nice. And it's like, wow, you guys were doing that in the 90s and it's a reprieve. 30 years later constantly constantly (sighs) very very tough it's you know and I'm sure so much of this is I forget what the phrase is so much of this is sort of like just she's she's absorbed hearing this um but like the whole like oh we couldn't even have fun uh yeah we were all scared um (laughs) this was so long ago and the fact that you know I'm I think that I still heard this at some of my first jobs where it was like, oh, I guess you can't say that anymore. And it's oh, like, well, you, absolutely. You just, you know? <laughs> it's so funny. I don't know how you felt when you read this, but that Murphy Brown played to 36 million viewers. You know, I was shocked by that until I remembered, okay, so before 
TikTok and YouTube and before streaming and Netflix and Peacock and cable. And I mean, there was cable at the time, but I didn't have cable growing up. I grew up without Disney Channel and HBO and stuff like that. So your options were like ABC, NBC, CBS. And yeah. if you if there were three things on television and, and PBS, there's probably Nova. So like your options were really limited. And I really think that is another reason why things were allowed to be a little bit more revolutionary because a lot of times people were going to watch what was on TV. So so it was there or not, like you couldn't turn it off yeah. <laughs> unless you wanted to stare at the wall. See, exactly. It was like <laughs> do cave paintings or watch Murphy Brown. That's, uh, yeah, no, such a good point. And you mentioned Diane saying all these things in the book. I just want to read a couple of them. So Diane English, again, the creator of Murphy Brown. A reporter ran right into Diane after we shot the episode. Are you thinking at all about the repercussions of this when it goes on the air? He asked her. No. Why would there be any repercussions? She told him. It's 1992. <laughs> I think the there's greatest a, quote of all time. Greatest it's quote of all time. I think there's a little tear in blood from me on that stained on that page. <laughs> I I love that it was such a huge deal that like a woman gave birth on a TV show, uh, yeah. and also like. You know, there are a bunch of things, too, where it's just like, wow, uh, again, this is why we're striking, but where the payment structure was really different, where it's like, Diane brought all of the writers a car that year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, wait, a car? So much. Yeah. We all went to a retreat in Aspen, and, like, everybody everybody on the crew got a diamond ring. It's like, yeah. Okay. Oh, Candace is like, you know, I was a TV star, not a movie star. So I only got the private plane to to fly into Sun Valley. I didn't get the mansion there. We just got a hotel. And it's like, just the whole plane? Where like, she kind of casually is like, when you were a big enough star at the network, you got to use the CBS jet like it was a taxi. And it's like, okay, lady. You're like, wow. You know, listen, I do want to, I'm glad that's in the book, but wow. Um, and just the, the, it's talked about, all of the wealth stuff is talked about in such a casual way that it's like, okay, this is a person who has only ever talked to people who are, obscenely wealthy in her entire life. Yeah, well, there's definitely a lack of awareness that anyone could possibly not live like this yes. in any way. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's also a thing that a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of nepotism uh, children and persons suffer from, which is that because there's this shadow cast of like, oh, you didn't work for what you had or you never struggled. In reality, every human struggles for anything. Obviously, the scale is different. But because they did struggle, they then hold on to that struggle as if it's the most important thing about them. Because they're like, no, I did struggle in whatever ways they did. And so Candace is like, but my father never loved me. And you're like, I know, but listen, we don't need four mentions of a jet. Yeah, (laughs) it's not the same. But it's interesting, you know, as a, like, she doesn't try to hedge a lot. There's not a lot of stuff like, yeah, I was rich, but I was still sad. It's a lot of like, I was sad and I was real rich. So, you know, (laughs) there's a lot of, there's a lot of that in there. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Okay. And then the last Diane quote I want to read is when she's talking back to Dan Quayle, who's very upset that Murphy Brown has had a child, fictional character, Murphy Brown. If the vice president thinks it's disgraceful for an unmarried woman to bear a child and he believes that a woman cannot adequately raise a child without a father, then he'd better make sure abortion remains safe and legal. I said, yes, a bitch. And then Candace says, my publicist, Pat, told me, Candy, you should make a statement. And she said, nope, I'm staying out of this one. And I said, Candy's a Republican. She's I mean, a quiet Republican. And she is. And later she does, like, eventually make a statement. But um, 
it's really tough to have such a beautiful quote from Diane English, like fighting and fighting and fighting. And Candace is like, no, thanks. There is a lot of that, like, I didn't want to get involved. I just wanted to go home and get in bed with my daughter. It's like with my tapestries and my vases. Yes. Which, you know, it's a relatively new thing that we demand that people on TV and musicians tell us their politics I mean, I really think that people did not care as much in 1992, and now they're a little bit more like, you know, we need to know who you voted for. Even with how this book shows you how crazily people were divided in 1992 over single motherhood, even then it was a lot more like, oh, like, Republicans and Democrats were friends. They just would disagree over Murphy Brown. And I think maybe she's suffering from a little bit of the, like, oh, my politics aren't important. You can still enjoy my show uh, from her era. Yeah. And you know what? You're exactly right. And in the 90s, -hmm. I'm sure that's how it was. But it's, it is, it is interesting when you think about the actions you take when you have privilege, like money and a platform. And like, what will you want to look back on in a memoir and and wish you had? What action do you wish you would have? What do you hope is in the pages? Because I am bummed to see, listen, she didn't have to tell us she decided not to make a statement. Like she was like, this is- I I'm know gonna- there are so many things in this book that I couldn't tell. Like, wow, is it admirable that she's saying this? Or should somebody have come in here and gone like, don't say it out loud. I know, this is, this is the, the whole book is the quiet part. The whole, Which, that's what she should have called it. A testament to that. That <laughs> is what she should have called it. Oh my God. Okay, and so- um, Let's see. Let's just hit some highlights as we as we roll out of here. Um, I wrote down the moment Marshall Rose knew he wanted to marry Candace is when he asked her if she wanted to share a custard for dessert. And she said, no, thanks. I'll have my own. I love that. Loved that. Mm -hmm. Those were moments where I was like, Candace is funny. I'm back in. Um, I also wrote every single housekeeper, nanny and cook gets an ethnicity except for the white ones. Oh, God. There's one. Marshall Rose has a housekeeper and it's the only one without an ethnicity listed like Brazilian or Portuguese. And I was like, oh, it's it's because she's white. But it's always like my uh, Portuguese housekeeper made a beautiful paella for us. And like very like, oh, I love the food of your country kind of stuff. (laughs) And then when she moves into like she talks about this, like this is a universal experience that she had to win over her billionaire husband's. Uh, house manager and it's like like anybody else is lives in a Daphne du Maurier novel like this it's just like this is not a common experience this is not a sympathetic experience I'm glad that you think that this is an interesting story it's more interesting than the the chintz you chose for your curtains but this is just this is a thing that you might want to share with your horse lady and not the world that is so well said and also had this story been told with humor, mm-hmm. it'd be the best story in the book. It, but it is just a description. The house manager was sick of all his girlfriends and didn't like me. So it was very hard to get her to like me. And then she did. After she marries Marshall, the book gets weird. The chapters are shorter. She's telling us even weirder stuff than, uh, you know, the type of shelving she got. Like as we run out of the book, she's like, Chloe has 7,000 followers on Twitter. I was like, I don't think this it's was also so 2016. Strange. Like it's a huge brag. Her 7,000 Twitter followers. If I were her daughter, I would say, hey, you have to make your publisher retract that and burn all copies of the book where that exists. Yeah, because I have a lot more now, mom. Yeah, it was just, it's just very funny. And then then this weird chapter, she said, I think Chloe will always feel torn between writing and acting, wondering what if. 
This is where Louis' guidance would have been invaluable. If I had to do it over, I would have presented her with acting at its best. She once asked me why I had always discouraged her from doing something that could be so stimulating, so engaging. To tackle a great play and understand an interesting character and speak thrilling words. Why, indeed, I had not always seen the nobler side of the profession. In fact, I didn't know it at all. I had only done two plays, blah, blah, blah. But basically, she's like, I wish I had made Chloe an actress and instead she's a writer. Like, I picked the wrong career for my daughter <laughs> when, I, when I chose a vanity career for her. Maybe she did the wrong one. Like, uh, yeah. It's, it's so funny because, like, she is, reading this, Candace Bergen is big nepotism. And there, there are many points in the book where she talks about what a bad actress she is. I think when she talks about she did a stage play and she was like, everybody else was like, let's do one more performance. Let's have one more matinee. And I was like, no, I'm going to go back to my French husband. And it's like, okay, well, you're not helping prove your point that you, you belong here, but it's almost like she never thinks that she has to, which is kind of revolutionary in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, I believe, uh, the definition of entitlement. Yes. <laughs> that's, like, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, at this point in the book, I was like, did Chloe not read it? Because Chloe's a writer. What? Where was the book editor? Because I'm going to read a quote uh, just and it's just, oh, my God, it's so bad. She's talking about Chloe's wedding because this is how the book ends. And she's like, this was the third time I'd be doing this spray tan thing and it had never gone well. A lovely woman came to the house, hosed me down. When I woke up the next morning, I was the color of mahogany, which by the way, when you get a spray tan, the first day is, is very dark and then it washes off and that's your spray tan. So this is, just a, this is just a misunderstanding, but you guys, what comes next? I just want everyone to just gird your loins. I was the color of mahogany. I called Chloe at work. I said, I look like a, and then she used a very dated word. Yes, for- racist term redacted. Racist term redacted. And I, and again, I just, once again, this book is published in 2016. There's so many, I mean, I, I don't know what year I would have allowed it. Maybe none, but 2016 is not it. Um, I think, I think like more that moment more than anything else, like it was like reading a book written by Lucille Bluth. Like there's so (laughs) many moments in it where I'm just like, this is, and again, how many times did you turn to the front page to see when this book was published? Because for constantly, me, it's like, constantly. that's where the spine is broken. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then, oh, oh my God, this was, this was the craziest thing. Right after she, she says the word, she says, I heard her stifle a laugh. And then she said firmly, first of all, you cannot use that term. It is extremely politically incorrect. Use mixed race. No, don't use that either. Also, why are you printing this? Why this is insane. Like this? telling your mom, saying to your mom, you shouldn't say you look like racist term redacted. You look like you're a mixed race. Oh my. But just, just say mom, the tan goes down. Like, what are you, what are you talking? And I'm sure, oh, oh. Anyways, the next paragraph is... I picked up Chloe's borrowed jewelry from our now close friend, Rebecca at Fred Layton. Rebecca was happy because when the editors at Vogue (laughs) saw Chloe's engagement ring, they decided to do a piece on non-traditional wedding rings, becoming the new fad. Chloe wrote it, describing her ring as a petite blue flash of elegance. People don't automatically know that I'm engaged, and I actually like the hesitancy and uncertainty. The simple fact of being engaged at 28 is frankly far more conventional than I had hoped to be. Thank God the ring isn't. And... Side note, I'm going to find that ring and I'm going to post it on the Patreon. So look out for it. She says that the Vogue insert was two pages and featured this huge close-up of the ring, which Candace uh, picked out with her fiancé, Graham. 
that also, I'm sorry, if you just want to give a, uh, a lesson in how not to be relatable to your readers, being a um, super wealthy billionaire woman who goes ring shopping with your daughter's fiance because you're going to pick out and buy the ring, like, um, it, th- this is definitely where I wanted to throw the book in the garbage. Yeah, which it, thankfully it's at the end. Also, I believe it's nearly exact to the opening of um, Sweet Home Alabama, you know, where she's the rich New York mom of Patrick Dempsey who's proposing to Reese Witherspoon and the Tiffany's. Uh, I'm just, you know, listen, got to call it out. Um, so, okay, so this is what's crazy, you guys. I just read that. In two pages, the book is over. So just try and imagine what narrative thread we could possibly be swinging from when we get to the end of the page and she's seeing the movie Maleficent with Angelina Jolie. (laughs) And this is how the book ends. In Maleficent, which we found to be a totally satisfying film, wonderfully made with excellent performances, especially by Angelina Jolie, the ending has been tweaked in a surprising twist, which Chloe and I loved. Marsh said it was better than he expected. A new version of the Sleeping Beauty Waltz sung by pop star Lana Del Rey filled the theater. Sitting next to me, Chloe sang quietly, I know you, I walked with you once upon a dream. I know you, that look in your eyes is so familiar a gleam. And I know you, that it's true that visions are seldom all they seem. But if I know you, I know what you'll do. You'll love me at once the way you did once upon a dream. I, of course, was crying. End of book. The end. can you believe that this book exists in a world where Lana Del Rey is a thing, but also she's using that M word to describe a mixed race person. How is that possible? I cannot. Also, like, you know, the song in Sleeping Beauty has always been a beautiful one. It is, it is, I mean, what? We we get a review of the movie Maleficent? She's like literally run out of stories to tell. So it's like, my family and I saw a movie and we liked it. That's how the fucking And Chloe's saying, wasn't that pretty? Bye. Also, there's no way that this happened, that the movie ended and that Chloe then leaned over and sang the entire theme song into her mother's ear. If Out I'm, loud? If I'm there, Ma'am. I'm calling the police. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely not. And then I will just say on the acknowledgments page, <laughs> she talks about how her editor, Betsy, was um, crying and shaking and, she, and asking for this book to be over. I told her she would miss me as, as soon as I stopped procrastinating and finished it. If this even resembles a book, it is thanks to Betsy. So big thank you to Betsy, because I cannot imagine what this was before you put your hands on it. She said, she did this with hundreds of paragraphs, which grew into pages sent to her by me from my iPad, thanks to the Pages app. I said, can you imagine being a book editor getting... I'm, I, what, was it even close to sentences narrated from Pages app on iPad just sent to you at random from Candace Bergen over the course of five years? I was going to say, if this is like, if this is the result, then imagine like what it was like before it was cleaned up. Yeah, because I know I've been like, where's the book editor? And I'm Betsy, listen, you really should not have let some of this stuff into print. I don't know what Candace pushed back on, but like. <laughs> I feel like. Like this book killed Betsy. Wherever yeah, she is. I feel like wherever Betsy she is, it really. We like, need to check on her. We have a segment called "Women." We need to check on. We women, need to check yes, on ed- Betsy editor on Betsy. I think it just runs out of gas in such a spectacular way that it had to be like you know when you like 
work on a project with somebody and you like, I don't even care anymore. Like do what you want. It feels like that's how the Maleficent chapter got in there because otherwise it's like, how does anybody like, but yeah, that's a satisfying ending. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like, just end it. Just end it. I can't work on this book anymore. You're right. You're so very right. So now it's time for something I call the book dull test. Okay. First question. Was the author vulnerable in the sharing of her truth? Yes and no. I think that there are times where she verges on seeming like a human being. (laughs) Um, But also I think that she has long ago uh, left planet Earth to live on planet rich person and that they just don't have the same rules for vulnerability that we do. Could it? I, 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 yes, I'm, I'm going to say, um, I'm going to give her a full yes in that this is her. I don't think she has more to give. So this was, this was all of it. Uh, second question. Was it entertaining to read? Look in fits and starts. It's, it's the same thing of like, let's say that this is like an eight episode TV show. <laughs> like, you know, where you're like episode two, you're like, what the hell is that? That's like when she goes to India and says a lot of stuff about how um, bad Indian people are at wiping their butts. Yeah. Um, and that's the most interesting part of the entire thing, even though it's super racist. Um, and then uh, there are chapters where it's actually really moving and a lot of stuff happens and there's good gossip. Um, and then there'll be another chapter about curtains. So really hit and miss, really hit and miss. And I'm going to give it a resounding no. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm so sorry we did this to ourselves, Julianne. Okay. And then final question did now this could go either way. You never know with this one. Did reading this book elevate your life in any way? You know, I learned a little bit about how television was made in 1992. And um, in terms of getting some historical context for the profession in which I work, it was good. Um, The rest of it, I probably could have done without. (laughs) And I'm going to say, I'm going to say yes, because as my outspoken spokesperson mentor, you know, there's always a nice reminder that sometimes you shouldn't speak out, <laughs> that sometimes it's okay to not publish a book. Absolutely. Not everybody has a book in them. Not free. every, and you know what? She did have one and, and apparently the first one's better. So I don't know where the second one came from, but she did have a paragraph in this book that I really liked about being on the red carpet and how you used to not have stylists and how you just had to be a rich person or you had to have rich friends because you just, where would you, you just had to buy the full dress. And then she talked about how, just how unbearable it is to walk on that red carpet and how it's everyone pretending to be authentic and failing. And there's a scared look you'll see in everyone's eyes. Um, Either like, I can't wait to have more of this or I can't wait to get out of this. And she did encapsulate like what those carpets are like to me in a very funny way and made me nostalgic for something I didn't realize I was nostalgic for, which is the days when celebrities dress themselves from their own closets. And like, I was like, Oh, that's why I used to love like people magazine and us weekly because Sharon Stone was wearing her own white button up to the Oscars. And I, I miss that world where like you really had to just be yourself more. Right. But I think like I had that same kind of thought where there was a lot of like, oh, right, like, this used to be these people, like, sourcing their own dresses, and that was fun. But I can get that same kind of thrill from that Instagram account, uh, Night Openings, 
Oh, like, I got to follow these people. You got to find it. It's just like old pictures of old movie premieres. Okay, I'm going to find that and follow it. Maybe this elevated my life. I also, she was in a movie called Rich and Famous that she talks about early in the book. Have you seen mm-hmm. that movie? I have not, but I know about it. And it's, I think it's about two women who were like, they get rich and famous and it affects their relationship. Yeah, which sounds like something I really want to watch and I'm going to. So if you guys want to get on Patreon, I think I'm going to watch Rich and Famous. And this is your last chance, Candy. Don't let me down with this movie. I need a good, I need a good two for female rom-com. We need something to wash the the Maleficent taste out of our mouths. (laughs) Truly. Thank you so much for coming on. I mean, this Thank is you three and a half years so in the fun. making. Mm-hmm. You were just my favorite. You were so smart. Your Instagram is such a great follow. Will you tell people where they can find you and follow you and support you? Sure. Um, you can. Oh, geez. I'm not on Twitter anymore, but you, you can. You can also just shout out whatever you want. You know, sure. Whatever. I'll just shout out. Um, watch Home Economics on ABC and Hulu. I love that. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Chelsea. All for this week's episode. If you have something to say, you want to talk back to this episode, or you have a question, or maybe you think you have a difference of opinion, join the book club. The book club is on Patreon. We have a chat, and there are so many cookies in the chat. We talk about the episodes, we talk about book recommendations, we just talk about our lives, we break things down. It's super fun. It's on Patreon. You can join for as little as $1 or $5 a month, and then just download the mobile app and you can chat all day long with us. Also, if you join Patreon, all the episodes are ad-free. So we started running ads. If you don't like that, join our Patreon. We send you a podcast feed with ad-free episodes and everyone comes to your phone. You would also get all of the bonus episodes. And there are so many great bonus episodes. You get all of that when you join our Patreon. And if you're a super hardcore cookie, we have a live book club on Zoom once a month. It's on Sundays. It's so fun. Sometimes we dress up. We chat about the episodes. No reading is required. If you want to read along, it's so fun. But also, most people just listen to the episode. And then we chat and hang out and check in. And a lot of really deep friendships have formed. It's the best. A big thank you to our podcast producer, Kate Downey, our executive producer, Jordan Moncada, our sound engineer, Marcus Hom, and our amazing assistant, Jaren Padre. I also want to thank our friends over at Pattern Brands. They are our product partner, and they keep me and my guests just rolling in the cutest tiny spoons and candles and so many other cool things. And Paquetto, I genuinely love our product partners. I love them so much. So go check them out. Everything is linked in the show notes. And if you have questions, go to the Patreon chat lounge, and I'll see you there.